This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Wisconsin Republicans have called on state Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz to recuse herself from ruling on a lawsuit challenging the state's legislative boundaries. They argue that campaign donations she received from the Democratic Party and comments she made while running for the seat make her an unfair arbiter of the case. Last week, she said she would not recuse herself from the case, citing past court rulings and promises to remain neutral on the case. Today, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss told reporters that impeachment is not off the table if he feels she injects her own political bias into her ruling. I want to see how she goes through the process. She said she's going to follow the law. The most important aspect of the law is following past precedent. And if we follow past precedent, the laws are constitutional. We've seen two different Supreme Courts find that they are. So let's hope she sticks to her word, which she said in her recusal ruling, that there's no need for her to recuse because she's going to follow the law. We'll see if she does. Voss's latest comments come after he sought the advice of multiple former state Supreme Court justices who told him they do not support an impeachment pursuit at this point. Sets the stage for a political and legal battle over the state's redistricting that could work its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court once again. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think Justice Protasiewicz should recuse herself from this case? Why or why not? What do you think of the threat of impeaching her? How do you want to see the state Supreme Court and the state legislature handle this redistricting issue? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Robert Yablon is an associate professor of law and faculty co-director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison. Rob, welcome back to Central Time. Good to be with you. Let's start with this recusal issue. As I mentioned, uh, Republicans have said, well, uh, she received donations from Democrats during the campaign. This, Even though they're not plaintiffs, this, ca- this uh, case could benefit them. And she described the maps as rigged over the course of the campaign. When it comes to rules of recusal for state Supreme Court justices, do those rise to that bar? Likely not. Uh, You know, recusal standards come from two main sources. They come from the U.S. Constitution's guarantee of due process, and they come from Wisconsin-specific judicial ethics rules. And uh, as a matter of due process, the U.S. Supreme Court has indicated that hearing a case in which a campaign donor might be interested generally does not require recusal. And likewise, that justices, judicial candidates have a First Amendment right to express their views and opinions on issues, uh, and that there's no due process right to have a judge that's never uh, expressed such views. So, um, you know, this is the kind of conduct that judicial candidates in Wisconsin and elsewhere uh, often do engage in. They're often out on the campaign trail uh, talking about their values and opinions. They only go too far if they make explicit promises or commitments. And I think Justice Protasiewicz was fairly careful to avoid doing that. Uh, and in this day and age, for better or worse, judicial candidates of all stripes receive hefty sums of money from political parties and other large backers. Uh, and for the most part, that does not require their recusal. As a candidate, uh, now Justice Protasiewicz did. I think express herself on issues a little more than most people expect Supreme Court candidates to do so, especially with the comments about the maps being rigged again. She didn't say, therefore, I would rule against these maps or anything like that. I mean, is that hair splitting? Is it reasonable to say if she expressed herself that strongly on these maps, she's at least somewhat prejudged the case? 
Well, you know, she, I, I think, understood that there is a line that the law sets out between expressing views and opinions on the one hand, which is permissible, and making promises or commitments on the other hand. And the guidance that judges typically get is a promise or commitment is something that is quite explicit and overt. Uh, and I think that she generally was um, taking care after she uh, expressed her views to say, I do just want to be clear that I will follow the law and uh, that, you know, I take an oath when I put on that robe to, you know, look past my uh, my opinions. So um, I don't know that what she was doing here, I'm pretty sure that what she was doing here was not different in kind from what you've seen from other candidates in Wisconsin or elsewhere. I mean, her opponent in the election uh, made fairly clear that he believed that redistricting was principally a matter for the legislature. And that is the uh, expression of a legal view on, on uh, one of these issues. So uh, you know, she stayed within um, within the norm. Again, you know, whether you think that the rules ought to be tighter, that justices should be more circumspect. I mean, those are reasonable views to hold. But uh, given the rules that we do have on the books, she seemed to understand them and uh, took care to stay on the right side of them. That's standards for recusal. How about standards for impeachment? Uh, what technically are we supposed to be looking for before we, uh, we being the state legislature in this case, start trying to impeach a state Supreme Court justice? Well, under the Wisconsin Constitution, impeachment is reserved for instances of corrupt conduct in office or crimes and misdemeanors. And that's always been understood to set a quite high bar on the kind of conduct that would be impeachable. And that's consistent with what former Justice Prosser said uh, in his uh, the, the guidance that he gave to Speaker Voss. Uh, and Justice Prosser, also himself a former Republican mm-hmm. legislative leader, uh, he said, quote, impeachment is very severe and ought to be very rare. And uh, he said that in his view, corrupt conduct is not the sort of term that's open to a mere political grievance, and that he didn't see any evidence of Justice Protasiewicz having engaged in corrupt conduct. Dr. Rob Yablon from the State Democracy Research Initiative and professor of law at UW-Madison, looking at calls for Wisconsin's newest state Supreme Court justice to recuse herself from redistricting case that the court agreed to take up and threats of impeachment of said justice. You can join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Jeff is with us in Superior. Jeff, hi. Hi, good afternoon. This is a good topic for Wisconsin to uh, approach. And being a Wisconsinite who believes in virtue, I think we need to trust our leadership and uh, and trust that what they say is what they'll do. I think when it comes to the judicial branch, we have especially, um, you know, to be um, sensitive to uh, their judicial tact because they're interpreting the law. So I'm willing to trust the leadership as long as they demonstrate uh, the ability to be objective. Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. Rob, what do you think? Well, I mean, that's consistent with the presumption that the, that the law has long recognized, which is a presumption of impartiality on the part of judges. And it's a reason why recusal typically is rare. Uh, we see it most often in cases where you might have a judge who's related to one of the parties in the case or a party's lawyer or the judge and the or someone in the judge's family has a direct financial stake in the case. Uh, but again, it's why recusal is not the norm when it comes to campaign statements or the receipt of campaign funds. Thanks for the call, Jeff, at 800-642-1234. Bob is with us in Sockville. Bob, hi. Are you there, Bob? 
Okay. I think we've lost Bob. Uh, thanks. So you can try again, Bob, at 800-642-1234. want to dig into another statement from Speaker uh, Robin Voss uh, at the press conference today saying that uh, legal precedent uh, should be observed. And he was making the case that uh, if Justice Protasiewicz is uh, interested in following the law, she should follow legal precedent and therefore past state Supreme Court rulings on these current maps. Uh, Stare decisis is the Latin for that, respect for previous rulings. Uh, That isn't always the case, as we saw with the overturning of Roe v. Wade at the national Supreme Court level. Rob, how important is it for uh, the current currently constituted state Supreme Court to follow precedent set by their uh, predecessor? Well, precedent is considered quite important. Uh, There is a presumption that the justices will follow past rulings. But as you note, it's not absolute. There are examples uh, that that happen with some regularity in the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, where precedent is overturned. There was a high-profile example in North Carolina not that long ago where a recent Supreme Court there Um, invalidated a set of legislative maps as partisan gerrymanders. And shortly after a judicial election, the new court came in and overturned that precedent. So uh, we do see precedents overturned from time to time. But the notion of stare decisis is that there ought to be a, a strong reason for doing it. Now, here I will note that the legal issues that the court is going to be taking up in this case are distinct from the legal issues that were addressed in the previous case. The previous case was a case about what uh, had become unlawfully, uh, unequally populated districts in Wisconsin. And and technically, the two issues that the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to hear here, uh, they're not even directly partisan gerrymandering issues. One of them concerns whether the current districts that we have are not contiguous, uh, contiguous within the meaning of the Wisconsin Constitution. And the other concerns whether the map that the Wisconsin Supreme Court adopted in the last case violates the separation of powers in the state. I want to talk about that contiguous map issue. So this is going to be part, as you said, of the redistricting case when it comes before the state Supreme Court. Uh, Contiguous meaning all, you know, connected and touching. And yeah, I was paging through some of the assembly maps and a bunch of them have... (laughs) small chunks that are separated from the rest. Some districts, you actually have to leave the district to go to the other part of the district. Uh, Contiguous, I think, is one of those basic principles, I think, even in the state constitution. How did we end up with some of these disconnected districts? So you're right. Contiguity is a requirement in the Wisconsin Constitution. And so how do we end up with districts that do uh, throughout the state have uh, little islands of territory that aren't connected with the remainder of the district? And the answer is that for the past several decades, contiguity has been interpreted to refer to political contiguity rather than geographic contiguity, which isn't necessarily the most natural reading of the term. But by political contiguity, what we mean is there are islands of territory sometimes that are part of a city or a village, but aren't connected geographically to the rest of it. And so the districts will keep those bits of city, those discontiguous bits of city connected with each other in a district, even if there's not a geographical corridor between them. We're talking to UW-Madison Law Professor Rob Yablon about threats to impeach state Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz after she declined to recuse herself from a case over Wisconsin's legislative district maps. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has said not moving forward on impeachment now, but not ruling it out in the future, depending on how the court case goes. 
You can join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Rob Yablon. He's an associate professor of law and faculty co-director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison. With us today to discuss State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz deciding not to recuse herself from a case in the state's legislative district maps. And Assembly Speaker Robin Voss continuing to keep the option of impeachment open. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Should Republicans in the legislature move to impeach the justice now or after a ruling if it goes uh, a way that they don't want it to? Should the justice recuse herself? What questions do you have? 800-642-1234 is the number. Let's go back to your calls now. Keith is with us in Greendale. Keith, hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I appreciate the calm, level-headed discussion, but I find myself frustrated because I feel like we should be talking about the fact that this is uh, just a naked power grab by the Assembly Republicans uh, who want to subvert the will of the Wisconsin people. Keith, thanks for the call. Uh, Rob, a, a naked power grab if impeachment were to move forward, our caller says. Well, and I, and I do think that that's part of the reason why former Justice Prosser counseled against it. Uh, you know, he said, for example, that if the legislature were to try to impeach a justice uh, solely, for example, to try to delay a case, that that would be viewed as, as unreasonable partisan politics. Uh, it's one of the reasons why impeachment has been so rare, not just in Wisconsin, but around the country. There's only been one impeachment in Wisconsin history. And uh, around the country, I- I'm aware of only about 14 state Supreme Court justices that have been impeached ever across the 50 states, uh, you know, covering 200 plus years of history. So uh, it's it's true that, um, you know, it would be uh, quite extraordinary for an impeachment to proceed in, in these sorts of circumstances. And that may be uh, one of the reasons why ultimately it seems like uh, lawmakers have stepped back at, at least a little bit from that. Thanks for the call, Keith. Christian joins us now in Milwaukee. Christian, hi. Hello. What did you want to bring up? Uh, Yeah, I was just telling your producer, whoever that was, that, uh, like, we the people, we voted for Janet. And the reason why we voted for her is now the reason why they don't want her in office. I don't think so. That ain't going to fly. I got my plastic pitchfork, and I'm ready to protest. Thanks for the call, Christian. Uh, yeah, there, that is one of the concerns people brought up is that impeaching uh, over this uh, this reason, Rob, would be overturning the will of the voters as represented in that election. That That is, you know, often given as one of the reasons why we don't want recusal rules to be too broad when it comes to things like campaign support or campaign statements. We do have a system of judicial elections and alongside that comes judicial campaigns. Uh, and we do want to know something about the values and the priorities of the justices we're electing. And so uh, even as we also want them to follow the law, we want to have some understanding uh, that they kind of share uh, our values potentially. And so, uh, so yes, I think that there is a widespread understanding that it would go too far in terms of recusal to force justices to step aside uh, in big ticket cases uh, precisely you know, because those were cases that voters might have cared about. Thanks for the call, Christian. Martin joins us now in Ripon. Martin, hi. Uh, Hello. I'm enjoying the discussion very much. I just have a further question. 
on the Wisconsin Constitution requirement that the districts be contiguous. You know, when I look at the 47th district of the assembly, which is in the Fitchburg to Madison area, that is such a crazy quilt of disconnected uh, islands all over the place. And it, it just boggles the mind to think that there's some any justification other than blatant gerrymandering for the way that and many of these other districts are drawn. Martin, thanks for the call. I was paging through district maps earlier, Rob, and I pulled up 47 here, and it is probably the poster child for questions about what contiguous means. Uh, two big chunks, but a lot of little chunks spread out uh, over quite a wide uh, area. Uh, have, is that one you focused on yourself at all? So, uh, you know, I think that what, what you're describing is a reality in many parts of the state. Now, uh, it is a reality that is distinct uh, to some extent from questions of gerrymandering. Uh, because there is a, a you know relatively neutral reason why you might do that, a- and that is those pockets of territory are ones that are part of, uh, say, the rest of the city of Madison, even if not physically connected to it. And so there might be reason to try to keep those pockets of territory in a district with the rest uh, of Madison because they have that political subdivision connection. Uh, you know, this this also goes into a whole separate uh, question of, of whether it's reasonable that we have these laws in Wisconsin that allow kind of discontinuous annexation of territory. But that's uh, that's a whole separate question. Thanks a lot for that call, Martin. Uh, Anne joins us now in Campbellsport. Anne, hello. Hello. Um, your question was, should Protosei which be impeached? And my opinion is, no, she should not. That I was so relieved to finally hear an official say out loud that the districts are rigged because indeed they are and were since 2010. And I think my question to Robin Voss is why are you so opposed to fair districts? I guess that's my comment. And thanks a lot for the call. Rob, uh, the, the rigged comment without necessarily saying rigged or not, when it comes to gerrymanders, I think Wisconsin, uh, uh, if you look at any Republican or Democratic gerrymander around the state, Wisconsin's is viewed as a pretty partisan uh, map, right? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there are established measures that social scientists will use to try to quantify gerrymanders. And by those measures, uh, Wisconsin's maps tend to be either the very worst or among the worst in in the whole country. There's uh, no question uh, a a partisan skew, even relative to uh, the political geography of the state, which might itself have a little bit uh, of a skew in it. But these maps dramatically amplify that. Thanks for that call. Now, Speaker Voss has commented, Rob, that the U.S. Supreme Court might ultimately have the final word on Wisconsin's maps uh, again, potentially. Uh, Is it possible that, okay, the state's uh, liberal majority in the state Supreme Court says uh, you have to redraw the map or no, here's a better map or whatever. And then once again, Wisconsin heads into the federal court system. That is possible. Uh, Most of the issues in this case are state law issues. And on those state law issues, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has the final word. But there are a few federal issues 
that have already or are likely to sneak their way into the case as well. So one federal issue is the recusal issue, because what the legislature has argued is that the U.S. Constitution's due process clause requires Justice Protasiewicz's recusal. So that is something that the U.S. Supreme Court could take up. I'm not sure that they would have much appetite to take it up, but that is a federal law issue. The other federal law issue that could make its way into the case is, is similar to what happened in the last case. Uh, there are requirements under the Voting Rights Act to assure fair representation for communities of color. And it's a fraught area of law, and it's not always easy to uh, apply it correctly. And so it's possible that an argument could come up as to whether if there is a new map drawn, uh, that that new map is being faithful to the requirements of the Voting Rights Act. Now, an important point here is that uh, under federal law, you know, you can't racially gerrymander, but partisan gerrymander, the courts don't really care about that. The arguments here is, should the Wisconsin state constitution be interpreted to say that a partisan gerrymander can be so far out of whack that, uh, yeah, it is unconstitutional. Is that, am I getting that right? Is that uh, part of the argument here? Well, so even that argument is only indirectly presented in this case. That was one of the arguments that the plaintiffs in this case tried to raise squarely, and we're hoping that the Wisconsin Supreme Court would take on. But when the Wisconsin Supreme Court said that it was going to grant review in the case, they actually limited themselves to the questions that we talked about before, the contiguity question and the separation of powers question. So to the extent that there's a discussion of partisan gerrymandering in this case, it's only likely to come if the court finds that the existing maps are unlawful on one of those other grounds and then needs to draw new maps. And at that point, it may need to give some consideration to uh, whether and to what extent partisan fairness should um, affect how you draw those new maps. Politically, when it comes to impeachment now, Rob, uh, Speaker Voss has, uh, has kept that on the table but looks to be late waiting for a result. It doesn't seem like there's necessarily a lot of appetite among Republicans and conservative former justices who released their letters publicly. Uh, Even if Speaker Voss wants to open an impeachment, uh, does it seem guaranteed that he would get that from his caucus? I I mean, hard hard to know at this point, you know, given the size of the Republican majority in the assembly, uh, they may well have the votes to impeach, which only requires a bare majority. I think it would be a much trickier question uh, whether they would have the votes to convict uh, if there was an impeachment in the Senate. That would require a two-thirds majority. The Republicans have exactly two-thirds. And I I think that it might be unlikely that every single one of those Republicans would be on board with convicting her. Rob, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Happy to talk to you. That's Rob Yablon, Associate Professor of Law and Faculty Co-Director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison with us today for a look at the political and legal battles unfolding over threats of impeaching State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. October is ADHD Awareness Month. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a neurodevelopmental, excuse me, neurodevelopmental disorder, meaning it affects the growth and development of the brain. It affects a person's memory, emotions, ability to focus, pay attention, and organize, and much more. And these symptoms can hurt someone's career potential, financial security, relationships, and overall mental health. But it doesn't have to be that way. Our next guest was diagnosed with ADHD as a child and now shares her experiences and advice on living with the condition. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you or your child have ADHD? What do you wish people understood about having it? What's most challenging for you? What 
tools, uh, workaround solutions have you come across? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Jessica McCabe is the creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD and author of the book How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it, which comes out in January. Jessica, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited we're talking about it. You were diagnosed with ADHD, I think, when you were uh, 12. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how ADHD affected your life? Yeah, like a lot of girls, I got diagnosed because there was a boy in my life that got diagnosed first. So my cousin was very stereotypically ADHD, by which I mean he had the more externalized symptoms, bouncing off the walls, getting into trouble. And he got he got taken to a doctor who looked at his mom and said, hey, um, you, you might have this too. So he actually evaluated both of them and she was diagnosed. And she was, you know, an adult at the time. Um, but my mom looked at me and said, you know, at 12 years old, you're a lot like your aunt. Let's get you checked out. And my very first doctor said, well, how did she do in, in elementary school? And my mom said, well, great. She got straight A's. She's a really gifted student. And the doctor said, well, she can't have ADHD. She's too smart. And thankfully, my mom uh, <laughs> knew better than that. And so she said, thank you for your opinion. Let's see a specialist. And it turns out I was diagnosed with ADHD. And then that actually leads into my next question. Some of the most common myths and misperceptions about ADHD. I think you just laid out one right there. Well, if it seems like this is a smart kid who did fine uh, to start school, it can't be ADHD. What are some of the most common myths you run into? That's exactly it. That's a really big one. Uh, but you can be gifted and have ADHD. There's actually a term for it. It's called twice exceptional, meaning you have this giftedness, but you also have some sort of disability that impacts your ability to learn or perform in some way. Um, that's a big one. Another one is that people with ADHD are lazy or that it's a matter of willpower. There are differences in the way that the ADHD brains work uh, in many ways, including with motivation, but it's not lazy. I can't tell you how many times somebody's come to me and said, well, I, I want to go get checked out. I want to look for a diagnosis, but like, what if, what if it's not ADHD? What if I'm just lazy? Because it's something that we've heard our whole lives because people just don't understand that ADHD brains are motivated by different things. Um, another, another one is that sugar causes ADHD or bad parenting causes ADHD. Um, there's a lot of myths bouncing around about that. There's also a lot of myths around the, the stimulant medication that we're quote unquote drugging our children or that we're giving them, you know, essentially speed, um, there, <laughs> or that even that the meds are, um, in some way habit forming taken at the doses that they are prescribed at if, you know, they can be misused, but taken at the doses they're prescribed at, they're actually not addictive. Um, and so one of the things that my community says a lot is like, my meds are so addictive. Why do I keep forgetting to take them? <laughs> Can you talk about the, the most common ADHD symptoms? And I understand it apart from watching some of your, your talks on YouTube, they, it might not look the same for everybody. Yeah. So there are differences in presentation. Um, there's three presentations of ADHD. There's primarily inattentive, there's primarily hyperactive and impulsive, and then there's combined type, which means you qualify for enough symptoms from each that you would qualify for both conditions. Um, and so the symptoms are going to show up a little bit differently, but the three main symptoms that get treated, get diagnosed and treated are inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Um, there, there's a lot of research to suggest that emotional impulsivity and emotional dysregulation is also a huge part of the disorder. Um, but unfortunately, that's not yet in the DSM criteria. So it leads to a lot of misdiagnoses or people being on, you know, under supported in 
some of those areas that they struggle most um, in relationships or getting in trouble at work for emotional outbursts. Talking to Jessica McCabe about ADHD. Her YouTube channel is How to ADHD. She has a book of the same name coming out in a couple months. You can join in with your questions, maybe your own experiences at 800-642-1234. Jessica, the main message I've taken away from from watching uh, some of your YouTube channel is you're not doomed. There are ways to live with and cope with ADHD (laughs) and thrive with ADHD. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, no, you're definitely not doomed. Um, ADHD, a lot of the ADHD traits are strengths in the right situation. So the the divergent thinking that we experience, um, which is basically distraction, right? We come up with a ton of ideas. We have a lot of um, a lot of divergent thoughts. A lot of outside the box thinking happens with ADHD. And yeah, that can take us off topic. It can make us get distracted, but it can also make us really innovative, great problem solvers, um, very creative in general. Um, so there are a lot of traits like that that can can flip to the negative side um, if, if they're unchecked or unsupported, but they can also be very positive. And even the places where we really struggle, um, there are a lot of ways to mitigate those struggles. So medication is highly effective. It's actually one of the most treatable mental health conditions with medication, but there's also ADHD coaching. There are tools and strategies. And so one of the things that I love about ADHD is that you can really take advantage of the strengths and do a lot to mitigate the places where you're impaired. Can you talk a little bit about mitigating the places where you're impaired? Uh, impaired. Okay. You, you suggest like even uh, seemingly simple things like making lists and, and other ways of kind of knowing where you're going to go wrong can help a lot. It can. So mindfulness is really, really helpful with ADHD. We tend to not always be the most self-aware. And part of that, I think, is that we're always... Um, kind of jumping from one crisis to the next. So it's really hard to be um, <laughs> to be thoughtful and like look at the patterns of behavior when you're just, you know, running and putting out one fire after another. But if you're able to slow down, if you're able to improve mindfulness, if you're able to work with a therapist or an ADHD coach and take some time every week um, or every couple of weeks to really look at what's going on, what are the patterns, you know, wh- where can we maybe do some preventative forestry <laughs> um, where we try and you know, catch some things before they become a crisis. Like it can, it can be really helpful. Um, I forget what the question is though. I, <laughs> I got off tangent. Oh, no. You're getting into that. Uh, just some of the, the practical ways, mindfulness, uh, one of those ways to, uh, to cope with the, some of the problems you mentioned. Oh yeah. To cope with some of the problems. Yeah. And then there's some really great, great strategies that can be helpful for anybody, but are especially important for people with ADHD. So yeah, lists is one of them, but, um, (laughs) there's a joke in the ADHD community, like, yes, I make lists and then I make lists of what my lists are. And then I lose (laughs) those lists. So a lot of the strategies that are helpful for people with ADHD support our executive function in some way, um, support our memory, support our ability to transition between tasks, support our ability to plan and prioritize and sustain our effort toward long-term goals. The problem is a lot of these systems also require some level of executive function. So while they're very helpful for us, they can also be hard for us to use, especially without support. So it's it's not only good to figure out what strategies can be helpful for you, it's also good to put supports in place to help you be able to use those strategies effectively. We have lots of callers. Let's uh, bring them on. Mark starts us off in Sheboygan. Mark, hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have ADHD, and I found out via my son who has ADHD. He has Asperger's, or Asperger's is an antiquated term, but when he was eight years old, he was bouncing off the walls, and he had been bouncing off the walls for quite some time. 
and we decided to um, get him tested. But they tested me first at the age of 40. And I had been dealing with it for so long, I had uh, dealt with it. And the psychiatrist said, you have ADHD. And so <laughs> it, it, it was something that had been going on for so long with me that I had adapted. And um, sitting in the front of classrooms, making lists, that kind of thing. And then my son, we, we were able to get his ADHD under control very well with medicine. And a lot of people are, are afraid of medicine, but I don't think medicine is necessarily something to be afraid of um, when uh, taken in the right context. Mark, thanks a lot for sharing uh, your story and your son's story as well. Uh, Jessica, you, you've said the same kind of thing. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, medicine, not something to be scared of. You might need to do more than just the medicine, but it can be an important part of the picture. Yeah, um, there's actually been long, uh, long-term long studies on this. There's one that's really famous called the MTA study that found that medication alone is not enough. The best outcomes for people with ADHD are a combination of medication and other treatments like therapy. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, even dialectical behavioral therapy can be really helpful for ADHD. Um, and again, I think I mentioned coaching, finding tools and strategies that work for you. All of this stuff is really important. And medication is one tool, and it's a very powerful tool for a lot of people, but it is only one tool. And it can't it can't help with a lot of other things. Uh, it can help you focus, but it can't necessarily help you figure out what you should be focusing on. Um, so there's, it's really important. And, and what, what Mark was saying is it's just such a common story. A lot of parents are diagnosed mm-hmm. when their kids are diagnosed because we understand ADHD better now, and it's thankfully getting recognized more and more. But what that means is a lot of people who got missed when they were kids are now getting diagnosed when their kids are. Thanks a lot for that call. October is ADHD Awareness Month. We're talking to Jessica McCabe, creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD, author of a forthcoming book of the same name. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you diagnosed with ADHD as a kid or maybe later in life? Why do you think it took so long if it, you weren't diagnosed into adulthood? Share your experiences or your questions for our guest at 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about ADHD Awareness Month. It is this month. Our guest is Jessica McCabe, the creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD. Let's go back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Tristan is with us in Madison. Tristan, hello. Hey, uh, my my name's Tristan. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, sixth grade. Uh, I use cognitive behavior, and I feel like it's made a big impact on my life. Hey, Tristan. Uh, Tristan, thanks a lot for the call. The line's breaking up a little, but Tristan, a younger sixth grader, I don't know if you caught that, in using cognitive behavioral therapy. You've mentioned that a couple times, Jessica. What does uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, look like for someone like Tristan and like you with ADHD? Cognitive behavioral therapy can help with some of the emotional um, symptoms of ADHD. It basically, there's a CBT triangle, right? So um, we have our thoughts, we have our behaviors, and we have our feelings. We can't directly change how we feel. If we're sad about something, we're going to be sad about it. But what we can change is our thoughts or our behavior. And if we change one of those two, that can impact how we feel. So if we go to an event and somebody 
um, you know, if we, if we offer somebody that, you know, Hey, do you want to dance with me? And they say, no, we might feel sad. Right. But then what we do next is going to impact whether we stay sad or whether our feelings change. Um, so if we, you know, go stand by the punch bowl and are really sad about it and bring up all the other times that we've been rejected, then that, you know, we're going to stay pretty sad. But if we, um, if we can kind of look at the patterns over time and notice like, what are we feeling and what's, pre- what's preceding that? What thoughts are be- preceding it? What behavior is preceding it? We can actually start to uh, adjust how we feel, um, which is really helpful for those of us with emotional dysregulation and really big feelings um, as those with ADHD tend to have. Tristan, thanks a lot for calling in. Before we go back to our callers, Jessica, I see that uh, boys are way more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than our girls, which could mean boys are more likely to have ADHD or we're worse at diagnosing girls with ADHD. Do you have thoughts on uh, which of which of those options it is? Yeah, I mean, we definitely are worse at recognizing ADHD in girls. And until we get better about that, I don't think we're going to really be able to tell um, the prevalence rate between boys and girls. But it's definitely not uh, it is definitely underdiagnosed and undertreated. Um, so it's, it's under recognized for a few reasons. So the ADHD symptom profile in girls tends to look different from the male symptom profile. So females tend to be more inattentive and less, less hyperactive impulsive. We also tend to, um, be better at developing compensatory strategies. So we work really hard, perfectionistic behavior, socially adaptive behavior. There's a lot more pressure on, on girls and women to, be good, to fit in, to be neat, to be organized, all of these things. And so we, we, we may work on it a little bit harder. Um, and we tend to have co-occurring internalizing problems. Um, I think probably partially as a result of all of this social pressure, we end up having anxiety or struggling really hard with depression. And that's what often gets recognized instead of the ADHD. There's also a huge gender bias. Um, teachers and parents both have a significant gender bias when identifying symptoms in children with ADHD. So, you know, if there were ADHD, I think there was one study where teachers were presented with ADHD like vignettes and just the gender of the child's name and pronouns were changed. Um, All the symptoms were the same, but boys' names were more likely to be referred for additional support and considered more suitable for treatment. So it is definitely going under-recognized, definitely going under-diagnosed. And for a lot of women, we're not recognized until we have a baby or, you know, or our kids get diagnosed or, you know, we start med school and suddenly all these compensatory strategies really aren't enough. And the ADHD becomes a lot more evident. Let's go back to our callers. Lauren is with us now in Milwaukee. Lauren, hi. Hi, um, I'm calling from Milwaukee. And I think it's so interesting that you're talking about the underdiagnosis of ADHD in girls and women and those compensatory strategies. Uh, I am in one of those situations currently, I have the in a, inattentive type of ADHD um, and also like anxiety, depression, and perfectionism, which is so interesting to hear you say. Uh, so I've just gone back to school for the first time. I would really like to be a graphic designer. Um, and for the first time in my life, those compensatory strategies are failing me and they're not enough. And I'm really concerned about, you know, f- failing out. Um I tend to do a lot better with physical work and activities where I'm moving around, but this is something that I want to do, and I just struggle with sort of the initiating really cognitive tasks. Do you think there are some jobs or fits that are just poor fits for people with ADHD, or do you have any words of wisdom? 
Lauren? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of it, yeah, there are some jobs that are going to be naturally a better fit for ADHD brains, jobs that are physical, jobs that are urgent, like um, being a paramedic or, you know, doing some sort of things that, that is urgent and crisis. Like I was a great waiter. I was amazing at waiting tables, um, but I, I wanted to write a book the last couple of years, and it's arguably one of the least ADHD friendly <laughs> things you can do. So, but I was passionate about it. And so if what you're doing is something that you're passionate about, I think that we can break through a lot of the obstacles that we would otherwise face because we care enough that we want to. Um, ADHD brains tend to be motivated by things that are urgent um, and things that are new or novel. So there are careers that are kind of naturally that way, but also we're motivated by things that are of personal interest. So if it's really meaningful to you, then I say go for it. And what you can do is recognize the places where it's not going to be as ADHD friendly and get the support, get the accommodations, get, get, get the help you need so that you can pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue. Thanks a lot for the call, and good luck to you, Lauren. Obviously, Jessica, uh, writing a book was a challenge uh, with your ADHD. It's coming out in a couple <laughs> months, so you, you found something that worked. Can you share one of the the secrets you figured out like to how to keep rolling on what's a difficult project for anyone, much less somebody with ADHD? Yeah, so... Uh, there's, there's something that happens for a lot of people with ADHD where people are like, Oh, well, you have ADHD. It's okay. Get it to me whenever. And that's very kind. It's also really disabling. What people with ADHD need is more accountability, not less. And so what I needed was, and I put this in place, I needed a weekly check-in with my editor. Any week that I was supposed to be writing, I, I set it up so that I would have to show her whatever I had written that week. And sometimes it was really embarrassing what I showed her. It was, it was an absolute brain dump. It was word vomit all over a page, <laughs> and it was really embarrassing. But if I hadn't had those weekly meetings, I wouldn't have written anything. And so it was a really cool thing for me to put those you know, little accountability pieces in place from the beginning. And even with that, like I used so many tools, I used half the tools that I, you know, that I talk about in the book to write the actual book. And sometimes I had to go back to chapters I had already written and be like, how do I do this again? Um, and use those strategies, because I would forget. And that happens a lot with people with ADHD, we have these strategies, and we know what to do, but we'll still forget to do it in the moment. So being able to go back and reference was really helpful. Um, but yeah, that extra accountability is really, really important. Because um, otherwise, we end up trying to do everything at the last minute when suddenly it becomes urgent. And it turns out, you know, there are some projects you can get away with that. Like a lot of us get away with that a lot in high school. But then you get to college and you're like, oh, shoot, like we're at the point where I can't really pull it off the night before anymore. And then you go to writing a book and it's like you can't pull that off writing it the <laughs> month before. So you really need to put that accountability in place. Talking to Jessica McCabe, that book she mentioned comes out in January. It's called How to ADHD. Time for one more caller. Jim is with us in Middleton. Jim, hi. Hi. So I was a high school math teacher for 10 years back in the 90s. Um, and because I was a new teacher and because of the way we track kids, I ended up with lots of students that were struggling with math, mainly because of their ADHD. And I would say not because of the ADHD, but the way we were teaching students in general. And because I was a physics major, really not a math person, I taught from a, a point of like, how do you use math in the real world? How do you do this physically? So we did lots of cutting things up, a lot of building stuff, a lot of calculator-based laboratories, you know, changing activities every, you know, 10 to 12 minutes in a 50-minute period. Hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously that's good technique just for students in general. 
but for students that are having a hard time concentrating or are really not engaging in the content, it's a, it's a good way to help them connect gotcha. what they're doing in the classroom to the real world. Jim, thanks for the call. We just have a few moments left. Jessica, how can teachers uh, like Jim who want to connect with students with ADHD, uh, do you have a quick thought for them? I think he's doing it exactly right, like meeting students where they're at and helping them learn in ways that they can learn best. Um, Dyscalculia, dysgraphia, dyslexia, there are a lot of learning disabilities that are really common with ADHD. And so finding workarounds, finding ways that the students can learn best with those struggles is a really wonderful thing. Thanks for that call, Jim. And Jessica, just briefly, for somebody who's maybe just gotten that diagnosis, leave us with uh, 20 seconds of, of hope for them. Yeah, I mean, it's really treatable. There's a ton of strategies, and there's a huge community that's incredibly supportive. So you're definitely not alone if this sounds familiar, and there's definitely support out there for you. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Jessica McCabe, creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD, author of the forthcoming book How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it. That's scheduled to come out this January. She joined us for ADHD Awareness Month. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, migraines can be a debilitating condition for a lot of people. Check out the causes of migraines and the latest on research and treatment of the problem and efforts to bring the latest research on board to improve treatment of migraines. And it's this week's edition of Food Friday with advice on cooking and baking with apples, even the ones that don't look so pretty. Join in with your favorite apple recipe email, ideas at WPR.org. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.